I want to see that handwriting on that thing. I want to see whoever signed it. I want to see the check boxes, all the bits. I'm telling you, a fax is like, whoa, next level technology. We're talking about 1985 as being like kind of where the tech ended here. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of IV Clinicians. Our guest today is Dr. Keel Coleman, an emergency physician and co-founder of Archive Corps. Keel is going to tell us how the blockchain can save clinicians and hospitals from credentialing nightmares. When I ask physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners about credentialing in general, I'll get the same responses. It's a mess, it's horrible, I hate it, something bad. And I feel the exact same way. It's a very arcane process. However, according to Keel, it is a necessary one. You know, we think about Dr. Duff, the Christopher Duff story. Great example of failed credential from training from the GME side through his initial credentialing and then subsequent hospitals. We need to honor the fact that people were injured because credentialing failed. So yeah, it's painful, but it's also critically important. Let's talk about the pain part. Why is it so painful? It's that time that it takes because it's not just filling out the forms and then there's some magic validation of those and then you get your job. This is shared decision-making within a centralized institution or a hiring group. And nobody wants to be the individual that owns that uh, for good reason. This needs to be agreement among a collective group of eyes. You gotta think these people don't just meet, you know, daily or every week. It's a monthly meeting. We have all heard disaster stories of credentialing delays where someone gets hired, they move their family, buy a house, get their kids in school, and then there's a credentialing hiccup. And both the doctor and medical director are scrambling for a solution. I was a medical director a few years ago, and it's extremely painful. Part of the problem is that different states have different rules. We're a republic, meaning this is, for lack of a better word, a federation of different entities. And each one is absolutely convinced that they are unique and that they are representing the best interests of their citizenry. What's interesting to me is the variation between states, like who thinks what is important. And, you know, some states actually having exams uh, for physicians, you know, that you have to pass to, to meet their, uh, their standards. And then others that actually have compacts that say, okay, you know, a doc's a doc, pay us the money, which is really what we care about. And, um, and we'll get your licensure and, and then you can start applying for credentialing in a, in a hospital. I think this is one of the places where we as physicians need to be grateful for an organization like FSMB, which uh, mm -hmm. the Federation of State Medical Boards, uh, which frankly has done a, a pretty great job of streamlining a lot of this. You mm -hmm. fill out, you know, those things hopefully once. Uh, you have to do updates when you go to different states, but it's really lowered 
the pain, uh, the injury count, if you will, uh, from having to credential from state to state. At the, the state level, you got to remember that state boards, their mission will be to protect the citizenry and uh, the health care provided within their geographic domain. They're not there to celebrate anybody, <laughs> certainly. It's, a, it's only on the negative end, um, it, but it's, a, again, a critically important job. I disagree that it needs to be done that locally, but, you know, that's me uh, and, and my own uh, kind of idealized uh, view of what the world should look like. And I, I think we can look at other places around the world to do this better. And, and uh, it would be anathema here in the USA, but having, you know, centralized credentialing where it's the government, meaning, yeah, that government, the big government that says, hey, you passed boards, yeah. this is what you get, and then you, the local, you know, institution or whatever, yeah, check over this person as much as you want, but this person is a doctor in, in your district uh, providing care to the citizens that are occupying that community. Um, it is a little bit more streamlined, but I'll tell you that that bar is actually a little bit higher than what we have here. Uh, hmm. In many, and I'm thinking mostly about EU countries, um, my kid is home in world school, so whenever we travel to a pop-up or whatever, I always explore uh, how what would it take to be a doctor here? What does their credentialing look like? Um, and it's been an interesting education. And how things can be done a little bit more streamlined down uh, in, in a future state. But that initial credentialing can be very, very tall for some of these countries. Interesting. So let's pivot a little bit to, to your solution. I think we've, we've established pretty well that, that the, the U.S. credentialing system for physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners could... Um, use some increased efficiency and, and improvement. Um, tell us a little bit more about uh, Archive Core and what problems Archive Core is trying to solve. We were speaking a little bit about the timeline of credentialing. And I, I think we're currently in a state of technology and culture where sweeping change is, is exceptionally different, uh, or I'm sorry, difficult. You can't remake whole cloth a system and imprint it on, again, a culture that has been doing the same thing for 75 years. Uh, it's just exceptionally difficult to do. And those efforts, while we've seen them, I have yet to see any fail. I think the third-party outsourcing of credentialing uh, is vulnerable frequently. And while I was all in on when I first started my career, having outsourced credentialing that made sense to me from the clinician end. On the institution side, it certainly didn't. So yeah, I started having to look at the timeline and where are the places where you can make incremental change. I want to go into that just a, a hair because I read something just this morning because um, the January 4th issue of Nature, there's a fascinating article in there saying that there hasn't been tremendous technological change for 50 years, meaning there hasn't been hmm. landmark science performed. 
And they did this very interestingly. They, they did a citation search and said, you know, was there anything that referred to this article before? So how many times was it cited? Was there anything before it? No, then that's novel. I can tell you that in my world, I'm half century old, 25 years ago, my wife and I would look for, for pay phones to get the next hotel. That seems crazy today, right? We have gone through tremendous change. I think we're at a moment where incremental improvements are needed. Because as, a, as a, a people, I'm talking about homo sapiens, we need just a little bit of a breather. I mean, the world is changing so radically, so fast. Um, and a lot of this is, is tech and science, but we need incremental change. And this is one of those places where when we are looking at a, a big timeline of something we'd love to remake in whole cloth, recognizing that's impossible, we step back and say, okay, what are the intervals in that timeline that we can improve? And that's where Archive Core came in. That was really our target and is what we're successfully improving. So taking primary source verification, the first critical step in credentialing, and just to tell the audience what this means, this is, okay, you presented yourself saying, I went to this medical school and this residency and this fellowship, and I worked these jobs. And they say, that's great. We don't believe you. <laughs> what right. They want a picture of the diploma. What a picture of the diploma, and you know, who can't make a diploma really quickly? So it has to have some validation behind it. We saw the, the revolution of you know diploma encryption, you know, just a few years ago. Um, you know, the MIT labs came out with a whole host of solutions around that. I, Learning Machine was one of the first things that turned me on around distributed ledger technology, how they did diplomas. But then that's not enough either. I have to pick up the phone and talk to whoever the program manager or coordinator was or is. And I say was on purpose because those jobs frequently, those people change. So there's got to be some record of that person. I want to see the record. So fax it to me. I'm telling you, fax is like, yep. whoa, next level technology. We're talking about 1985 as being like kind of where the tech ended here. Maybe transferred by an email, maybe, but that's not necessarily believable because then you got to go back to that email address and check the IP and make sure they're from the right place. That's a lot of people hours involved there. Um, in our, so we, we did some, some tests early here and we're just, our CBO is great at collecting data. They were looking at about 14 business days, about 11 hours of time to make that happen. And that's if everybody does their job at the pace you want them to, or things don't fall out of somebody's inbox. Somebody, if one piece doesn't get there, the whole thing doesn't move forward. And no hiccups, no gaps in you know clinical time. Uh, you know that's a pristine coming out of residency package. That's what that took. So tell us a little bit more about kind of how you so you 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 saw this problem. Take us to the next step. Yeah. So it was in 2016 that I started um, getting into encryption, actually, as part of a project that I was working on during the MBA program. I started becoming fascinated with how are things secured and how do we know this, 
sounds deeper than it is, but how do we know what is truth? Like when you see something, how do we say that's valid? Um, and I became fascinated with uh, encryption and then what at the time we would call blockchain. Um, I now prefer the term distributed uh, ledger technology, so DLT, and started thinking, wow, you know, if all of this time in credentialing has to do with verification, this is a technology designed, that was its point, is verifying assets. That asset we all think about, you know, dollars or you know yen or whatever you're you're trading in, and that that was the kind of the original use. But what if anything can be put on a chain, for lack of a better term, a distributed ledger technology, a distributed ledger package, can be confirmed through consensus, which is more valid than any single level encryption multiple people checking that or multiple machines checking that. Wow, we've got something. If that can happen in seconds, we've got a way to actually decrease that time and have it be even more trustworthy than our current paradigm. And I started thinking about how we could actually implement this and was lucky enough to have a partner, Lennox McNary, who was thinking very much along the same guidelines. We still have the original text chat of she was sitting in an airport about to go on vacation with her family. I knew she was getting on a plane in like 30 minutes and this kind of epiphany. I'm like, hey, I was just thinking, bam. And I just kind of said, what about DLT for primary source verification for this? And she writes back, I was just writing you the exact same thing. It was just that kind of moment. And then I had to wait for her to get back from vacation. And I, as my wife said, I did a lot of pacing and a whole lot of scribbling during that time. Um, she was evidently ruined her vacation doing the same thing, but came back and, and we wireframed it uh, within a couple of months and then uh, developed. That's great. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder, both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, Filter them by your preferences and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about what that wireframe looked like at that time and how it's evolved since then. Yeah, at the time, you know, we were such, uh, so naive, frankly. Um, I actually had a picture of 
documents that would be incorporated on a distributed ledger. And uh, that would be insanely inefficient. While you can do it, nobody would want to see it. Um, I don't know anybody in a CBO office that wants to look at, you know, lines of code and then wait for it to be translated uh, so that it looks like a facsimile of what, what the original thing was. So instead, we said, what if we take the documents and take that document and hash it, like basically all of the information that's in a piece of paper, for instance, that, you know, all the print that's on it, and that get that turns into a transaction file. Uh, or code. So you have that that's then on ledger. And okay, at this time, this data got put on ledger. Um, and this is who did it. And this is their IP address. And all that time can be checked and validated against the record, which is the ledger. Well, that's really useful. But as our CBO educated us, that's our credentialing verification office who we're working very closely with. They said, you know, I want to see documents. I want to see the handwriting on that thing. I want to see whoever signed it. I want to see the check boxes, all the bits. And so he said, okay, so we could do that really easily. We'll just create a vault. So we did. So we went uh, to Amazon and developed a, a large vault that has its own uh, dedicated encryption source. It's basically cold storage for these documents that are identical to whatever the server is at the training site that, that uh, uh, you're working from. They're copies of, uh, you could say they are original because they're taken from the original. We thought about uh, having a series of notes that an institution could own. So, you know, it'd be Apple hospitals, you know, node uh, or sec or series of nodes that they could you know trade within hyperledger done a great deal of work with this and they have fantastic uh tools uh for exactly that purpose but we're talking about a profession that as you detailed crosses state lines and crosses institution and has different payers right. a single set of nodes doesn't help any of those people that you might be going to you know i'm working in southwest virginia right now my wife says, okay, we're moving to Sacramento, get a job there. And, and then I have to convince that hospital. If they're not in that network, well, then, you know, we're kind of dead in the water. We needed something that would work alongside, was agnostic to anybody's credentialing verification network, but would augment them, would help them out, and they can access it at their leisure and then use their own when they want to. It needed to be very fluid uh, and it couldn't be rigid. Uh, and that's how we came up with this design, which is ledger, transactions, documents, hashes, and then the real live documents held in a secure storage situation that is not vulnerable to physical threats. And that's another part of this, and, and a, a legitimate threat. I don't know if you know anybody that's graduated from medical school in Puerto Rico, but they are having a rough time. Yeah, yeah. They lost a tremendous number of records. Whether that loss is permanent or not, after Maria, which is what, like years ago, that's still unknown. And if those people are trying to, you know, translate to a different position, it, it's actually a question. So you think about physical threats and, and unfortunately in this world, we gotta think about earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and wildfires and oh yeah, terrorist stuff. And, and so you need something that's 
going to be, you know, as as close to immutable as is currently possible, and that's what we have. So just to just to um, dig into the the Puerto Rico situation a little bit. So are you saying that that records such as graduation records at the medical school were were destroyed during the hurricane? Potentially, that's uh, so. What I've heard from um, an associate that uh, this is just a person, like an acquaintance, they were actually like mid-job trying to go to a credentialing thing, and there was a huge hang-up. Now, was that communication delay or was it actual destruction of record? I am not clear, and I can't say with absolute certainty which one it was. But it's something I think yeah. about a lot when people say, "I'm going to, I'm going to have to go to the warehouse." to get that record because that kid graduated in 2008 and it's 2023 and I don't keep that on a server any longer. It would, that was when we were using all paper and it's housed in a box. We just have to go get it. And that's Leon, that's not unusual. Okay. That's I think actually probably the, the standard that makes me very nervous as a person who's dependent on his past training and job performance to get to the next link in my professional life, whatever that is. You've talked about kind of this cultural conservatism in the credentialing world where they, they like paper, they like wet ink. They, they don't like newfangled technology like fax machines. How, how do you get credentialing um, professionals to move into the technology that you're describing. Talk about one of the greatest hurdles, I think, for any kind of technological improvement in, in healthcare administration. Uh, and that's con- convincing a group of people that by nature are conservative. I'm not talking about politically conservative. They may be, it doesn't matter. Uh, in their professional life, they can't entertain risk. And I think the, the first thing that we, and I'm talking about all clinicians, well, we can you know, speak poorly about the burdens of administration or whatever. We're also part of our power as a profession is being empathetic and understanding where they're coming from. And I think that's the first step and talking to them about, hey, I get like this is crazy important and that you can't allow a hiccup because it could be devastating both for the institution, you know, the facility, um, more importantly for your community and, and how it may violate, you know, your mission, which is, you know, all of us working together to make people better. So the first step, I think, is, is empathizing with where they're coming from. The second is saying, we're not coming in to wreck your process. Don't need to, mm-hmm. okay? Keep your process. Keep all those sets of eyes that have to agree that this is truth and that this is not a bad actor or a sociopath that you're bringing on to staff. We don't want to interfere with the way you did things, but we want to make your life better. And I think we can. So here we go. And we'll demonstrate, okay, we'll have these records, you know, give us, you know, somebody from your training program or somebody that's a new hire. Um, now it's on, it's on the ledger. Now go verify that. Oh, you just did. Yeah, it took you like three seconds, right? You just verified that's real. Look at all the data behind it. Does that pass muster for you? Yeah, that's better than what we did before. Oh, great. But I really want to see the documents. Great. Click the link there and there it is. 
oh, oh, I have the document. I have the verification that's improved over the phone call and fax that I did before. Wow, I just took an 11-hour process and moved it to a little under a minute and a half. And, mm -hmm. and we say, yeah, now wouldn't it be great for you to be able to use that time to do the research that you're really on to, which is that person that may be later in their career. How did that work out in the last place? You know, Would you like to actually have a person-to-person -person phone call? Not about whether this person is who they say they are, whether they have the skill set, but whether that's a person you really want to bring on to your institution, that they match your cultural ideas, uh, ideals, and uh, that they'll work with you uh, well. And that, to me, is, is one of the more important parts that a, a high-functioning credentialing office will be performing. And we give them the capacity, the temporal capacity to do that. That's great. Yeah, it sounds sounds like you're you're using a lot of your physician skills to to bring to bring the credentialing office along and and help them help themselves basically make their jobs better. Well, that's the hope. I mean, we're not here to wreck anybody's you know life or the thing they do for a living. It should be an improvement, and it shouldn't be just an improvement that serves one side of the equation. This is a two sided market. Remember. We've got the training group, uh, and then we've got the credentialing side. And both sides should be working together to guarantee we've got the best medical staffing for you know a given area, an institution's footprint, whatever it is. So let's talk a little bit about your startup journey. Um, I have yet to hear the the story of the startup that had no no hurdles, no bumps, and and all of a sudden IPO'd and everything was great. Can you can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that that you faced in in starting this company? Sure, I think um, first off, uh, being physicians, it, it, it's a handicap in a lot of ways. I think there's mm. plenty written and, and plenty of people that will tell you, and I'll be one of them. That say there's nobody that can improve healthcare better than physicians, and I do believe that's true. At the same time, our makeup as physicians probably precludes us in some ways from being that that shark that you sometimes need to be uh, in startup land. And part of that is recruitment of capital to develop. These things are not cheap. I mean, right out of the gate, we started look shopping developers. And people were saying, you know, yeah, we need a couple of houses to start this. I do a good bit of real estate stuff. And so I think in, that's what a house equals, you know, a certain amount of money. So when somebody's telling you, yeah, I can get you a beta for like 300 grand. And you're like, I don't have that kind of capital laying around. That's that's not in my shoebox in the closet. Um you start getting into that uncomfortable place where you have to ask people for money. And that's, as a physician, not something that I train to do, not something that comes naturally to me. I'm much more on the, man, I'd love to be able to give you a fiver so you can get a dinner, you know, uh, instead of asking people for what to me seem like obscene amounts of money. But learning that reality of that's how you function and how you grow uh, was very important. And we got a huge lift uh, right out of the gate with the uh, Carilion Clinic innovation efforts. They gave us seed money that really helped us out uh, at the start. And it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to say, 
these are people interested in looking at what the future state of healthcare should look like, how we can improve the current paradigm, and we're going to we're going to make it real by putting the only language that Americans understand, which is cash, in your hand to make that happen. And that, while I don't think it was, it wasn't the great material improvement that we needed. It was that faith that said, hey, this is worth going after. We're going to give you a little bit to, to start. With that, we actually got our initial development done by, um, I'll call him a mentor in the company, really, uh, a local, uh, incredibly gifted entrepreneur uh, and physicist who assisted us with our raw development, like our initial product. He did it really from scratch on his own. And then we shared that with other developers with that, that initial root build, we could share it with someone who needed a little bit of cash to keep going and did it at a much lower rate. So overcoming those hurdles, those are the first three big ones. And then that was enough to get us into, okay, you, we can get some seed money, do legitimate development. So if there's a UI that is pleasing to look at and that people can actually manipulate on their own uh, and that we can service. And from there, we continued growing. I think that was you know, our first big hiccup, just the adjustment of, oh, I'm now in need of capital, which is the role of startup founders. I would love to think it was just sitting in a room ideating all day. That's not it at all. You gotta make this stuff happen. And that, that's, for some personalities like mine, not easy. So where do you where do you guys go from here? Yeah, we are currently uh, entering sales. Um, so we've had uh, paid pilots that you know did what the product said it would. It pleased those customers. So that's gotten some validation, and we are very pleased to see. And now we're looking into like large like scaling sales. Uh, we'll also be entering an investment round coming up within, I think, about 90 days, where we're, we're looking at kind of an A series, which we believe will probably get us to scale. Um, we have run this really close to the bone um, for years, and we'll continue to, uh, this wasn't a, a get rich quick thing, this was improve a process. And that, that's where the passion comes from. Uh, so, yeah, with a small investment, we'll hopefully see ourselves at scale and see this incremental improvement make a real difference uh, for physicians and institutions. So take our audience kind of five years in the future. You're a, a physician. You're the physician that you were talking about who's moving to Sacramento. How's your credentialing process going to look different and better once Archive Core is, is at scale? Yeah, let's say all dreams come true and everybody's using this technology uh, in their uh, credentialing process, that two weeks down to a minute is, that's legit. Uh, and I, I think that that time savings will be significant for institutions. That's part of our sales bit. The, the more people that are on this, the actual, uh, the faster the entire professional will move. I think what that does is decrease the time to credentialing. So maybe I don't have to tell that kid you need six months of you know liquidity. Maybe you know it's still going to be long, 
it's still going to be, you know, maybe four months. I think that we could actually apply it at other places in the process uh, to make this easier. So overall, in five years, I would like to see a measurable difference in the length of time and credentialing. And I'll tell you that because of groups like FSMB and improvements around credentialing verification offices, we've actually already seen a, a, a difference. These are these people are very conscious of how long this takes and how difficult it is uh, for practicing doctors and, and also people that are just leaving training. So there, there's there's an impetus to expand anything that's going to improve. So in five years, I see a measurable difference. I'd like to see credentialing taking from an average, it was six months, five years ago, four months in the high performing places today, we could easily see it come down to 90 days, a legit 90 days. So I have to ask one question about about the blockchain. I can't I can't let you leave without talking about the blockchain. So so I, you know, I thought that with FTX blowing up and Bitcoin prices crashing, I thought you know the the blockchain was over. I thought that was just a fad that went away. Tell <laughs> convince us that that the blockchain is something that uh, is with us in the future. Well, Leon, I, I think you're using the term the way probably most of the public does, the blockchain. There are literally, you know, thousands of blockchains. I, you know, in the, in the year of the initial parabolic speculative investing run-up, 2017, there's somewhere on the scale, it was like 15 to 20,000 individual blockchains. So, you know, or I would prefer to say distributed ledgers. Regarding FTX, thank God, and, and I'm with Coindesk. Why wasn't that guy in jail six weeks before they finally arrested him? I mean, Bank, Bankman Freed and those of his ilk need to be doing time, should have been, made examples of, and we need regulation. Our focus has never been blockchain as a speculative investment. Archive Core was offered early, it was, I guess, February 17th. Is that 17? No, it would have been February 18th. We were offered tokenization. Of, of our company. That's, mm. and, and a, an ICO at that time was very appealing. In, in my fantasy land, that, that's private jet kind of money. That's like where you, where you make it, right? We had a fairly loud uh, group meeting uh, with our team where we sat and we discussed, what are we doing? Is this a wealth enterprise or is this a technology improvement to improve process we made a unanimous very clear decision that we are doing tech here it's not the blockchain it's not whatever you know meme coin is out there that's all noise i'm a big fan of butrin the guy that you know is is listed as, as largely responsible for ethereum where in those years he said this is all a distraction. Get away from it. Look instead at what we can do with this technology to improve the lives of individuals. And that's where the nut meets are. So are you saying I can't I can't invest in Keelcoin? <laughs> no. Uh, there will never be a Keelcoin, hopefully. I'll tell you, that was a that was a really good just the discussion at the time was really all about money. Again, being so naive, I was not thinking, you know, this is a great way to see the inside of a federal penitentiary uh, or to be in really deep trouble and have to relocate to the Caymans or whatever. 
we really weren't thinking that, but I now recognize this, you know, that, that regulation has its role. I think no matter your political ilk, anybody could criticize uh, our government over the last several years, but this is one of the places where I think they've kind of sat back maybe too long and just tell us what you want to do and what this stuff actually is and who is minding the house. I'm hoping that the outflow from FTX, we will see a lot of the speculative market disappear. And instead, what will remain from the rubble is, is Ethereum and Bitcoin. And by the way, they are. Yeah, Bitcoin has come down from like, what, 60,000, I think it topped out at. But right now, it's hovering right around, it did at its highest peak in 2017, which nobody, uh, even if you were an oil investor in the 20s, you didn't see those kind of gains anywhere else. If it stays static here, we'll see incremental increases just like any asset, but it's now going to be around what are its technological use cases. And that's where the emphasis needs to be. So thanks for the question. I'm glad to see it. I don't know why it took so long. And I think there are several people around the globe that probably ought to be watching that and either apologizing really hard with money right now or uh, planning, you know, how many quarters does it take to get a packet of tuna out of the commissary? Uh, <laughs> so I have uh, just a few conclu- concluding questions. So I, I like asking our guests, um, what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? So I'm, I'm one of those distracted readers. So I usually have three or four like books that are laying around strategically around the house. And what I pick up is it Hakari? Homo Deus was my my most recent, really interesting read. I don't agree with all of it. It is a fairly sobering look at, at humans' future. Um, and as the, the self-described kind of futurist thinker, um, I'm always thinking or trying to think, what is this world, this amazing place look like in 10 years? Um, that gave me some clues. You know, for pleasure reading, uh, Pollen's How to Change Your Mind is an amazing read of you. Mm. I don't know if you've, you've taken a look at it, but as an emergency physician, so. I'm very interested in kind of the revolution right now around psychedelics and mental health. The Ketamine. Ketamine on its own, but all, you know, just MDMA and then psilocybin, LSD, et cetera. Pollen does this great history of how, you know, LSD was, was, a, that was a pharmaceutical effort and then how it lost favor and how the 60s were not mm-hmm. kind, even though we think of LSD in the 60s. Um, and then today's kind of pharmaceutical revolution, I, I, I use that term not lightly. Um, I'm meeting people in my practice, even though Virginia doesn't recognize it, that are coming from other places that have used. And there are clinical consequences that we need to be aware of. I think this is a book that informs us where these folks are coming from and what are the, the positives of this kind of therapy and where it can go horribly wrong. Because that's what you and I do is when they go horribly wrong, what we can do. So I, I really enjoyed that as a, it's a kind of light read. It's not super heavy, um, but a great one. That's great. So if um, a listener is interested in Archive Core, potentially as an investor, potentially has some questions for you. 
what's the best way to um, to connect with you? I think the, the best way on the company side, archivecore.com. That's all one word, archivecore.com. You can uh, hit us up there. Uh, you can uh, meet, uh, reach me individually on LinkedIn or keel at archivecore.com. Uh, it's a great way to go. Uh, either me or uh, our CEO, Linux uh, uh, McNary Kais, uh, Linux at archivecore.com. Either one of us, I'm always happy to chat out. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.